Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease with another episode of the Surfing Sales Podcast. Uh, as always, a quick shout out to our great sponsors, Salesforce Revenue Cloud, Lead411, Vidyard, and uh, who's our fourth one, Scott? Gong. Gong. That's right. Gong is back. Gong. You know what? I, they blew my mind with their Super Bowl ad. So that's that's why. I was like, oh my God, they ran a Super Bowl ad. Um, so so in addition to that, though, we're, we're joined here with a, with a really smart, fun guy who's um, very versed in account sales, um, who is Ian Cognac from Salesforce and uh, is the strategic account director, which, you know, at a company of 60,000 people, what does that title mean, Ian? And thanks it means for a lot. <laughs> yeah, it means a lot. Uh, you know, from, from a strategy, it's exactly what a director would do. You're directing your team. So I, I manage a team. Now it's up to 30 people because we acquired, you know, Tableau and MuleSoft and, and Slack. And um, my, my goal in my job simply is to make sure Salesforce is bringing the breadth and depth of what we have to offer to support our clients' most strategic goals to help them uh, succeed in all areas of their business. Um, we are so, fortunate. So, so let's skip the buzzword. Like let's get out of marketing speak. What, what's that really mean? Like Scott's smiling because he knows that I don't like it means, it means I carry the whole bag. So everything the client sells. So I'm not supposed to be a product expert. We have, I have 75 products now to carry. I don't need to know everything that everyone does. I need to make sure I'm bringing in my team. If I hear there's an integration challenge or there's a big strategic initiative, but integration is going to help with, I'm going to bring in MuleSoft. I'm going to make sure I'm holding them accountable. I have the team meetings. I get paid on everything that Salesforce sells and everything that we carry into our clients. So we have a lot of products and a lot of people, and somebody has got to be the glue that connects the customer. How do you figure that out? But so how does, so, and I, I assume this is what your team does, but how does it go from, you know, I'm, you know, Visa and I want to do X and I call my account manager at, Salesforce and they get me in touch with someone on your team and you guys figure it out. Like, I'm just curious of like, how's that even, and then what's the reverse side of it is, Hey, Visa doesn't contact you and you need to call Visa and say, Hey, here's, did you know we can do these things for you? Like, I'm just trying to understand that. Yeah. It's almost always the latter. So I have, um, you know, the responsibility of growing our ACV in the existing account. So they could be spending 10 to $20 million with us. I don't get a penny of any of those renewals. I'm paid on growth. So if we're targeting 20 to 30% growth a year, then each of our large accounts should be growing 20 to 30%. So um, I carry a ARR of about 20 million across my team and we're solely responsible for growth. So if Visa were to call and say, hey, we're trying to um, better connect with our customers and you know deliver a... a omni-channel experience, whatever that means for them, right? My job would be to talk to their senior most executives. So I'm calling on the C-suite, I'm calling on SVPs, I'm not spending time with managers, directors, most of the time it's VP and above to make sure I understand what is the initiative, why does it matter, what's the impact of, of changing and not changing, and is this really somewhere where I wanna put my team in and, and basically um, utilize resources to help them. So if they say, yes, this is really important, we're trying to do this because you know we have this you know goal of hitting this revenue or um, we're losing customers. You know, I'm trying to get the meat of, of why this initiative is important. And if it is, I'm gonna bring in my team. I'm gonna bring in engineers. Um, 
90% of the time, I'm not selling one product. I'm selling a combination of products to solve a problem. So I'm really responsible for bringing in my team, which could be a few sales reps. It could be a few engineers and solutioning to exactly what they need based on the problem they're trying to solve or the goal they're trying to hit. You imagine Richard no. somehow having to keep track roughly of 75 different products to sell. No, but he said he doesn't. But like, well, Scott, I can. I you're don't. good at this, Scott. You you delegate well. You be like, okay, this is this is my quarterback on this product, and this is my oh, person yeah. on that product. Like, you would yeah. you would be, you know, I think that's what Ian's saying. He does. Let me put yes. this in layman terms. Since Revenue Cloud, you said is one of your sponsors. Okay, so right. you have the Salesforce Revenue Cloud. What does that mean? Well, it's probably something to do with RevOps. It's probably something to do with how orders and opportunities are connected to revenue coming in. So the process of configuring a quote, sending out an order and having that hit the general ledger. I don't need to know everything about the product to know that if there's a lot of manual steps in that process, that the rev cloud is probably something that they need to be talking about and bring in that particular team to have a business conversation. My job, the best account directors in this company are very fluid and versed in having business conversations, which frankly, I'm, I'm glad because I don't want to know all the yeah. bells and whistles and speeds and feeds. I love my job because I get to solve problems and let the smart people, you know, figure out the technical architecture and design and implementation and everything that comes afterwards. How much more complicated is the role now than it was eight years ago when you, when you first stepped into it? So much more. I mean, we, we sold to the VP of sales before and, and we had, we had three products. We had the, the sales cloud, we had the service cloud and we had the platform. So the sales cloud was for helping people essentially manage pipeline and close deals and track sales performance. The service cloud was help, helping customer service organizations manage cases and tickets and create a good customer support experience, online portals, that type of thing. And the platform was to build custom applications for your employees or your customers. And that's it. Now we have Tableau, we have MuleSoft, we have yeah. uh, all kinds of different solutions. So the, the frankly, I cannot keep up. We have vaccine cloud now. We have... Um, work.com. I, I don't want to keep up. What I want to know is that when I talk to a client, I'm versed in being able to connect with them very quickly, build trust, build credibility, and that I have a great you know, set of customer references that I can come prepared with that I can say, hey, we solved this similar problem. But at the end of the day, what I'm going to do 90% of the time is I'm going to talk to an executive and I'm going to say, I think we can help. Let me get back to you. I'm going to get with my internal team, figure out the right way. Because there's very rarely a problem that we can't solve given do, our amount of products, if that makes sense. Do you ever get the, do you ever get the urge or, or do you ever daydream and just think, God, it would be, it'd be really fun to just sell one product again? Do you ever, do you ever pine to like go back to the beginning or, not or, really, or, are you, really. or are you, no, no, no. I mean, that sounds painful to you. No, it's, it's, I think you, there's a lot of growth when you can't carry a big bag, right? You have to learn about, you have to learn to speak a different language, frankly. I mean, when we announced work.com last year as a way to do um, contact tracing, for example, that was a, a category that didn't even exist in Salesforce is getting into now distributing vaccines in Los Angeles and giving personal protective equipment to hospitals where our government might not be able to act that fast. So it, we're, we're, our company is moves very quickly and adapts very quickly and keeps us on our toes. So if you want a career where you kind of master, you know, what um, you sell and can rinse and repeat over and over again, it's definitely not Salesforce and it's definitely not the account director role. So I could have moved to a single product within Salesforce at any point, but I love 
love carrying the bag. I love be, being able to actually close seven, eight figure deals and be able to really solve big problems. And I think, you know, when, when you only have a hammer, then you're just going to look for a nail everywhere I go, but I don't have a hammer. I don't even have a toolbox. I get the whole Home Depot to go after, you know, and, and help re recreate how clients are doing business. So it, it is really, I mean, we are doing nine figure deals and just bigger deals and bigger companies than we've ever done before. And, and I just, um, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. For me, I, I get bored pretty easily. I, you know, definitely like variety. I think a lot of salespeople can, can, you know, yeah crave change. And so every year is different. Every goal is different. And, and it just keeps me on my toes. It's, just, it's interesting to hear from an outsider's perspective. It's interesting to hear you talk about how you get bored easily and you crave change because I, I look at your career and you were at Rico for like 10 years and you've yep. been at Salesforce for over eight years. You've had two jobs ever. I had, I had within, within those resume. careers... Yeah, within that, I had 10 jobs within those two companies. So yeah. I was promoted. I had six jobs at Rico. I was promoted five times in five years. When I left, I was running Southern California. I, I had 80 employees. We had 60 million. So I went from a, a, a individual rep to a major account rep to a sales manager, um, general manager, and director of sales in, in that 10-year period. So it was different pretty much every year. And I was also building out you know, our, our, our team in SoCal. And then even in Salesforce, I started in the enterprise. I changed teams. I got new accounts. Then I went into commercial for a little bit. Then I went into enterprise select, and then I moved to national enterprise. So it, it, it's all the same. It's all essentially, this is the longest I've ever carried a bag at one company in, in um, relation to my, my previous company, but it's been a change every single year in terms of territories and products that I carry and accounts that I cover. So, I mean, it, it's definitely, um, it, it's definitely, uh, innovative and, and new in that sense, but you're right. I'm when it comes to like being an entrepreneur or changing companies, I'm not the two year, three, three year guy that just, you know, hops companies. I, I stay the course typically. And why do you, why do you think that? What about you makes you want that longevity? Right. And I, you know, I think, I mean, Scott and I are of the startup world. Um, you know, you, you started in a more traditional corporate world and moved to another corporate world. I'm just curious, what about Ian likes that stability or, you know, what was it? Like, you know, I didn't get out of college and go, let me go work for Rico. I want to sell copiers. Right? Yeah, I didn't want to sell copiers out of college. That, I'll give you another story and how I got into that. But um, I was forced to do it. I, I didn't have a choice, frankly. It was the only job I can get. And I needed to make a lot of money very quickly to be able to get out of a very, very bad situation. So um, that's how I got into sales. And I'm happy to dive further there. But, you know, just for me personally, I think... It comes down to if I'm still growing at a company and if I have opportunities to grow, I stay the course. I think in general, it takes at least a year to get on your feet, to learn the culture of a company, to learn the products, to learn the selling motion. So you got to commit at least to a couple years before you can say, I quit, I give up. I My character is that I'm persistent, maybe to a fault, right? In that I, I definitely... Um, and loyal too, right? So if I'm working for a good boss, I'm working for a company that I see growth with. And I've been on, fortunately, the train of Salesforce for eight years where we've had tremendous growth during that time and the stock's done great. And so I haven't really had a reason to, to leave the company um, until kind of recently. I mean, now I'm, I'm doing some other things and I'm thinking about what is my long-term look like? But until this point, you know, the, the growth that I've experienced and the um, 
for me, I think there's, there's a lot, but I ask myself, am I, am I still growing? Have I learned everything I need to? Is there upward opportunity at this company to get me where I want to be? And if the answer is yes, I tend to stay the course. If it's no, I'll try to look within the same company and find a different job or role um, as long as the company's good so that I can, again, start fresh, but not have to learn the culture and not yeah, have but to when, But when you left Rico, why, why did you go? I mean, granted, it's Salesforce, so I get it, but- why not go to a startup? Why not go and say, all right, you know, I've taken this big company experience and I'm going to go and, you know, I mean, I can just tell by the way you're talking and the excitement and the passion you have. And I don't, you know, we've never met before today other than some emails that like you're a go-getter, you're going to make shit happen yeah. all the time. And I, I mean, and it would thrive in that kind of world. But, you know, again, maybe it was life circumstances and then you got there and then, you know, later on life circumstances kicked in again of like, okay, now I've got a wife and kids and a mortgage and, you know, I need, I can't take the risk or maybe, you know, I, I'm just curious. I think, I think you're, you're hitting the nail, right? I think at the end, it comes down to risk tolerance. So if you look at my portfolio of investments, it's fairly conservative. I'm following index funds. I have some tech stocks that are big name tech stops, but you won't see a lot of startups. You won't see some crazy risks. So I think, you know, I'm starting to see this other side now. I'm starting to see this other world of infinite possibilities. But when I was at Rico, it was the only thing I knew, right? And I stayed there a long time because I, I was building out the organization and I felt very connected to it. And I had a lot of, you know, respect within the organization. They gave me autonomy and I, you know, was, was a big part of their growth, their growth story. How I got into Salesforce and why I transitioned was we were using Salesforce. I was brought in my first year as a sales manager was 2007 and we brought in Salesforce. And um, that was right before the great recession hit in 2008. And you got you to imagine copiers, printers, that is the declining in industry. You add a recession to that, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Well, during that period, I grew my business 30% in the same area. And that's how I got those five promotions in five years. That's how we built it up to 60 million ARR in a copier distressed industry. And so part of my methodology was having a proven sales process that I knew worked, that I had executed with my team. I had gotten every one of my team members over plan. And they said, well, come replicate this with three teams. Okay. Then five teams and then 10 teams. So basically big part of my success was using Salesforce, setting our KPIs, setting our sales motion, setting our opportunity stages, making sure we're actually following a process for discovery that gets to the meat of why clients buy. Right. So implementing that and training that was very, very effective. And then I'm like, maybe this, this isn't where I need to be. True story, Richard. The reason I went to Salesforce is because I read an article in Forbes magazine and it said the average account executive at Salesforce in the strategic enterprise space is making $310,000 a year. This came out in 2012. I was a director of sales running a $60 million organization of service and hardware, and I was making about 250K per year. I was number one director of sales in the country. And I said, if I'm at a $25 billion company running a $60 million business, making 250 and the average Salesforce rep is making 300, I am playing in the wrong sport altogether. Yes, maybe we're all in sales, but I'm in the wrong sport. I'm on the wrong team. I'm in the wrong league and I need to go to the big league. So I decided to stay, take a step back. I, I interviewed three times, got rejected three times, finally got in, um, rest in peace. My boss who, who passed away, um, a couple, a couple years ago, Grant Wood, he hired me. He gave me a chance. He had come from HP, had come from printers and copiers and basically said, you know what? I know the hustle. I see it. I'll give you a chance. Whereas other people just wanted that software experience. So yeah. that's how I ended up getting in. It was purely money driven. I'd used Salesforce. I knew what it could do for our customers. I was very excited about it. And, and here we are eight years later. So now, 
Now, let me, let me press you on something. Because <clears throat> as you said, it's very, very money-driven. Um, but it's near-term money-driven more than long-term kind of money-driven. And that's why I think some people go towards the startup route and the leadership route. They're thinking about equity. They're thinking about you know, a significant ownership stake and that kind of thing. But I think it also speaks to why people stay carrying a bag and being a more of an individual contributor versus going into leadership. There's trappings because you get locked into a particular income level, right? And it's hard to walk away from that and figure out, you know, how am I going to keep my lifestyle up and, and all this kind of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that as you, as you, you know, moved into this new role and started, you know, presumably being in the 300s and, and graduating to wherever you are now um, and what that's like? Sure, sure. So the 300 was the average. So my first question was, what is the top, right? That was the first thing. And I found out, actually, I interviewed, I won't name names for, for confidentiality, but um, I, inter I, I had a peer that was on a team in Southern California, and she was one of the top reps year after year. And I, I took her to lunch. That was one of the first things I did when I got into Salesforce. And I said, what have you been making? You're one of the top reps. You know, it's, it's good for me. It's inspiring. And she said, you know what? I've been just short of seven figures now for five years in a row. And I am so pissed. I just want to crack that million dollar mark. And I was thinking to myself, I'd be happy to make 400. I've been doing 250. So I knew the possibility was there, yeah. right? But yeah. I, my first four years at Salesforce, I actually was only making an average of about 250, right? So, I was, making, so for the first couple of years, you were making about on par what you made at Rico. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so that was like what started my journey to personal development. I was so money driven and this will probably transition to where I think we'll go in a little, little bit, but I was so money driven money. I, I got my sense of worth based on my W2. I, I got my sense of worth based on my net worth. And I was always looking at how much can I make? If I didn't make a lot of money, I felt shitty about myself. So my first year at Salesforce, I got in, I got lucky. I actually hit a, um, a big, a big year, but it was purely through persistence because I wasn't good at strategic selling yet. I only knew how to do was sell copiers and do transactional sales. So I was kind of taking that methodology and thinking it would work in enterprise and I was wrong, right? So I, I got lucky. I got one big deal and then I ended up missing my quota for three years in a row. And so that's wow. why I wasn't making that. And I was ready to walk out. I was ready to go to Microsoft or another big company right, where there was safety. Um, but fortunately I didn't, right? And I, I said, you know what? Maybe it's not my territory. Maybe it's not my manager. Maybe it's me. Maybe I need to do differently. What did you change? What did you do differently then? Because I think it's a really important piece. And, and I even see it for people who are earlier in their sales career who want to move into a more strategic role or an enterprise role or go from SMB to mid-market or mid-market to real enterprise. What were the things you, you sort of like, okay, this is what I needed to shift? Yeah. So, so a couple, a couple things. The first thing I did is I, I, I got humble and it's the same thing I had to do when I entered recovery, right? I had to realize maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing. I was the top dog, the biggest fish in a very small pond. And when I was thrown in the big pond, I was just average run of the mill. And I'm not an average person as, as you pointed out, Richard. So I was really pretty down on myself. And, you know, it took me getting super depressed and really feeling like something's got to change. If my whole value of life is in, you know, my, my income and in my performance and I'm not performing, what am I? I'm nothing. Even though I had an amazing family and wife and home and all the things you could think of, none of that mattered. It was just performance. And so I, I basically took a step back and I raised my hand and I asked for help. 
Okay. And there's a lot of parallels within recovery and actually getting better in, in sales as well as number one, you need to be humble enough to go ask for help. So a lot of things I did. First thing I did was I joined a mastermind for, for high performing salespeople that wanted to go from good to great. It was called Epic Impact. I spent, you know, $20,000 to go on a bunch of retreats with them to get a coach, to join this year long mastermind out of my own pocket. And, and it was, um, it was amazing. That first year that I went into personal development, I ended up finishing number one at all of Salesforce. So I finished number one in the enterprise. Globally. globally. Wow. Yes. Number one in the enterprise select. I made over a million dollars. I made over a million dollars. And then I repeated and I repeated and I repeated and I repeated. And here's we are. Here we are. And that's kind of why I'm doing a lot of this now is I want to pay forward and share what I learned during this period. So people don't have to make so those things. Like what are two or three things that you, you know, yeah. for those who can drop 20 grand. Right. <laughs> so, now, yes. Right? So, so what are, what are first, two or three things that they taught you? And, you know, it could be about humility or it could be about self-awareness. Like what, are, what are a couple of things that, you know, if people are feeling stuck and they so the know first, that they want, you know, yeah, what, so the, the first thing it's, it's almost of it. 90, 95% of it's between the ears. I want to, I want to lay that out. If they did not teach me setting selling skills, they taught me that that barrier, that barometer, that temperature that I had set of being the 250, 300 guy was completely limited. And that was my own story I was telling myself and that there were infinite possibilities. And I had to really see myself and visualize myself as that number one person. So they taught me how to do visualization. They taught me how to really set a goal and feel into that goal. We did exercises where I was imagining buying my dream house, which we could never afford at the time that I'm living in right now. Before I ever, I imagine my wife, my future children, this is four years ago. And I, and I imagine, you know, my wife gardening in the house. And I, I kid you not, Richard, we have that house now. And I, I could never imagine how it would come to be, but it manifested. So they teach you a lot of that personal belief and visualization and understanding, you know, your goals to begin with and really believing in, in the power to believe in yourself and infinite possibilities. So a lot of, a lot of that. Um, the second thing they taught, you know, is, is really, about being of service to other people. I was very self-centered. I was very inward focused. When I was selling, it was all about closing a deal. It was not about solving a problem. It was not about helping a customer. It was not about adding value. And so when I went from inward shifting, thinking about me and what I needed to sell to outward shifting, thinking about how can I help this client? What do they care about? What's important to them? What are their needs? And, And truly just paying attention and being present enough to listen and to hear them and really try to help them. That's when everything changed. So the big deal that I got a few years ago that kind of started me on this, on this trajectory was a company called Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. And they were not a client at the time. And I connected with their VP of um, sales operations, who was then connected, uh, promoted to their COO, and then he became their CEO. Or CEO. So he, I kind of followed him at, through this journey. But the big thing I learned was, um, you know, when I was doing my discovery, he would tell me what he wanted. He would tell me what he was looking for, what was broken, you know, why it was painful. But the biggest thing that I got from that discovery process was it was maybe eight or nine at night, I was chatting with him on the phone in the office, I still remember. And I just took a second. I said, you really seem to care about this a lot more than any client that I've engaged with. You mind if I ask you why this is so important to you? And he started opening up and he tells me that he was raised by a single mom and that he didn't have a father figure around in that there are so many single moms in the real estate industry who don't have a choice. They either working a nine to five or they're going to be a full-time mom. They can't do both. And real estate gives them 
the opportunity to truly do both on their terms, be the mom, be there for their kids and go in and, you know, be an entrepreneur and sell and, you know, figure it out their way. Right. And he said, we have failed all the single moms out there because we don't give them the tools they need to be successful. We don't give them the training. And by getting Salesforce, we are going to give them a platform that they're going to be able to go execute. And I don't want to fail them like, I was failed when I got into this industry. I want to be there for that single mom. And that was my guiding force. That was my guiding principle. The rest of the sales cycle, I thought about helping him help his customers. I thought about not the one company that was buying my product, but the 50,000 users that we can actually help do their job. So really thinking about the impact that your products and services make on not only your customers, but their customers and even the people that are buying houses, right? So there's a really... Um, you know, exponential effect when you go to that level, but simple, simple act of getting to their why and making sure it's really important and understanding really builds that human to human connection and helps you want to be their advocate and fight for them and get, get, do whatever you got to do to make them successful. So that was like the biggest thing is like, get out of my own head and start worrying about other people and helping other people and then let your gifts shine through. Yeah. I think, I think the most overlooked sales skill is altruism right? Like that's it, right? You talk about empathy and all those things, but it really comes down to being altruistic and supporting people. So yeah, uh, it's like, it's like be an employee for them. If you work there, what would you be doing? Right? What do they really need? If they don't need your stuff, then walk away. There are plenty of people that do. If you can't help them, walk away. If they don't want help, walk away. What I've done very differently the past four years. So my income has gone from 240 average, my first four years to over 700,000 average the past four years. So I've hit quota every year. Um, afterwards. And it's been a really awesome run. And, and frankly, the big thing that I'm doing differently now is I'm going to power. I'm going to executives. I'm seeing myself as an equal to these executives. And I'm basically focused on the, the meaty conversations, getting to the truth and, and just frankly, trying to help them where I can. And if I can't, no big deal. I mean, my time is super valuable and I see myself as equal to them. So that's where I focus my time now. Richard, you're, you might be the first person to ever use the words altruism and sales in the, in the same sentence. I use it all the time. I train on it. You're the first person to do it. I've never heard, I've never heard you say that. I've never heard really? the word altruism. No. Wow. Maybe I'm old. I don't know. So, well, I'll take it as a compliment. So thank it's got to be a win-win when you're, when they see you're out to help them, when they see you're fighting for them, when they see you're, I mean, it's they infectious, you. it's infectious. And that's yeah. been my thing. And you, I don't know if you can teach that. You got to just care. If you start to give a damn and want to help people, you know what? They'll work with you. They'll buy from you. So it's, it's really simple when it comes down to it. I want to I shift this because this, this is actually how we met. Um, and, and I know you were open to talking about some of this and it's really important to to myself for my own mental health, because I talk about a lot and Scott supports me in my own journey. Um, every now and then I'm a surprise him with something about my own mental health. And, uh, and I know this is important to you is that you are, I'm gonna let you tell the story, but I do wanna congratulate, you're almost at one year of sobriety, right? Yeah, in three days. Three uh, days. February 13th. Awesome. Yep. So, so tell, I mean, tell people about that and how it's affected. I mean, you can go in a thousand places, but you know, in sales, we see it a lot uh, because of the pressure, right? We're told to crush it. We're, try, we're told to hit the number. You know, you even said it yourself. I wrote it down was that, you know, your value was not related to your W-2, right? Your self-worth. And um, I, I'd love to just sort of hear, you know, what was your wake-up call or, you know, whatever you're willing to share and yeah. hopefully in a way that gives advice to other people as well, right? Like that 
that they're not alone and you can you can move forward. Yeah. Well, my wake up call was more like a wake up scream and it came from my wife. So um, it was not something I'd wish upon anyone. And in terms of, you know, addiction and addiction recovery, I think you've got to hit your rock bottom. Everyone talks about a rock bottom, right? Until you hit that rock bottom, you're, you're not going to be willing to change, to change or to get help. And so for me, I, I, just to give a little bit of context. So my I have addiction in my family. My father struggled with addiction. He died when I was 19 years old. Unfortunately, my brothers had it. Um, it, It's been in our family, my cousin. And and I never, I was always in denial. I was like the guy. I was raised by my mom. My mom's a professor at UCLA, super hard worker. My dad was a dentist. He had a a business. Um, I was fortunate. They were divorced, but my mom, you know, was was basically raising me and my dad, um, I would visit on, on the, um, the week or the Christmas holiday in, in summer. I'd see him you know, two, twice a year. And I love my dad, um, but he was very different. My dad was very loving and affectionate and creative and just like kind, but he had his demons, he had his struggles, right? And I, I kind of didn't see a lot of that because I wasn't living with him, but I did see my mom's influence, which was, you know, hardworking, two jobs, you know, raised single mom, raising kids. She got remarried. I, I had hers is that example. And I always kind of like said to myself, you know what, I, I'm going to be like my mom. I'm not going to be like my dad. Cause my dad died young and he had lifestyle and addiction. And, you know, I, I just, I, I kind of repelled that part of me. And meanwhile, I was denying a big part of myself because my dad, not only does he have amazing qualities, but you know, he, he, uh, his genes are my genes. Right. So I, I always kind of denied that I was an addict because I was high performing and, and you know, that I was um, functioning. And, and what you see on the outside, I, I just pictured an addict as someone who needed to go to rehab or need help or is in the streets or whatever. And so I, I just want to set that context that I was always on the outside, very high performing. Well, inside I was broken. I was always basically in a place where I was working so hard and so driven that when I wasn't working, I needed a way to escape. I needed something to ease the tension. And so it wasn't necessarily one thing that I would go to as far as an addiction. I wasn't like my drug of choice was was alcohol or pot or gambling or Adderall or sex or video games. It was all of them, Richard. I had if I wasn't doing one thing, I would go to the next one. I could not be still. I could not be at peace. I didn't have inner peace. And so what ended up getting me was sex, unfortunately. Um, and and I'm married to a Christian woman and, and she um, always had different views of me as to what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So without getting into too much detail, um, I'll just give you an example. Uh, she always considered strip clubs cheating. And I went to a lot of strip clubs before I got married. And I didn't stop going when I got married and I just didn't tell her about it, right? I also viewed pornography. I, I did things that I thought normal guys just do. I didn't think twice about it. And you know, I'm not gonna tell people how to live their life or how not to live their life. But for me, these things were stress relief and, and they were just ways of escaping. If it wasn't that, it was me smoking pot on the weekends or getting drunk. Um, it got to be Adderall where I was just working really hard. And that was like an excuse to keep the, you know, the engine cranking on work. And so what ended up happening is um, by God's grace, grace, his grace alone, I decided, you know what, I got to come clean to my wife about some of the stuff that I've been doing. I feel like I, you know, this is not an integrity. And I I'd started doing speaking and coaching and I'd started, you know, really trying to help people and be of service to people, you know, on, on, on social media and in different forums at Salesforce. And I'm like, you know what, this is out of character. It's out of character. And, and I had done something 
that I felt very guilty about with my wife. And so I decided to come clean with her. And I'm like, I'm just going to tell her, you know, I didn't have an affair. I didn't have girlfriends on the side. And I can't, it can't be that bad. Right. Well, it was, it was fucking horrible. Part of my language. And I caused her incredible pain. She basically said, I don't know who I married. And, and, and it got to the point where I had told her, you know, I was, I was doing, you know, um, things that were out of integrity with, with my character. And I, I felt good. I felt like it was, you know, but it was for me. I was trying to get my, this weight off my chest and come clean. So I didn't have a guilty conscience. Well, once I saw the, the pain that I inflicted on my wife, once I saw someone who I love, I love my wife. She is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. But once I saw, I put her in pain and, and, and it was a pain just to give you a little more context of what my rock bottom was. Um, she was so shocked that this man that she admired, that she thought she knew had done some of these things that she started crying and shaking uncontrollably. And she was four months pregnant at the time. This was February 13th, almost a year ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, it was really scary. And she started shaking and I saw that and I just wailed. I said, what have I done? My poor wife, I've just caused her so much trauma and harm and it got worse. She started having contractions, labor contractions. And she had had a, uh, she had, she had had a miscarriage a, a year earlier. And I'm like, what is going on? And I was just like hysterical. I'm like, we got to go to the doctor. We got to go to the doctor right now. Like, let's go. And, and we hopped in the car and this was my discovery day. This was a year ago. This is what got me sober. And so we, we hopped in the, in the car and basically headed, headed out to the doctor and I called my mom. I'm like, I, I think Sandy's going to miscarry. You know, she's going to have the baby. You, you can't have a baby four months. There's no chance of survival at that. And, and, and I'm meanwhile thinking I, I caused this. I, I did. And I, and I started praying and I prayed with all my heart. I said, God, please don't hurt my wife and my baby, please. You know, I'll never do this again. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize what I was doing was causing so much pain. And we get to the doctor and he puts the, you know, he puts the, um, the sonogram or whatever, whatever it is to check the heartbeat. And I swear, I thought it was going to be, you know, no heartbeat. And, and I've told this story a few times, so I can tell it now without breaking down. But every time I say it, it's, it's hard. It's hard to imagine that that's where I was a year ago, but that's, that's where I was. And the doctor looked up and he said, there's a heartbeat. The baby's okay. These are stress contractions. They're stress contractions because she has been put in so much distress. And for me, that was, that was where I, I, I said, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters at this point, except keeping my family, making my wife happy, being of service to my family, being the father that I know I'm meant to be, breaking this generational curse that has been with us for so long. And it's been one year and I've not looked at pornography. I have not gotten drunk. I have not smoked pot. I have not taken Adderall. I have not played a video game and I have not gambled. So every single thing that I was doing that was out of integrity, I have not done. So for me, it truly is about now learning to live with myself, learning to love others, be of service and embody what I'm teaching other people. And if I hadn't gone through this experience, I wouldn't be able to share this. I wouldn't be able to relate. I wouldn't be able to coach. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's also the most fulfilling and gratifying because now my wife is glowing. She's happier than she's ever been. I'm honest. I don't have skeletons to hide. I let, I shine the light on the darkness that was, you know, plaguing me for, for most of my entire life. I've identified the sources of trauma that, that caused me to go need to medicate from the time I was very young and exposed to pornography, to um, the, the divorce, to, you know, things that I witnessed as a child, you know, all kinds of things that I uncovered 
you know, right around the time I was like 11 or 12 when I started acting out. And, and it's just helped me truly shed that layer, shed that layer of the old self, this thing that I denied and accept, you know what, this is who I was, but this is not who I am. This is part of me, but this does not define me. So um, that's what, that's what started this whole journey for me. First of all, thank you both. Thank you both. You and your wife and your child, all three of you for, you know, being willing to be open about this because, you know, I can, you know, it can't, you know, it's your, it's all of your story, right? It's not just yours anymore. Right. How did you, so you hit this rock bottom, right? And were you able to cold turkey it? And, and again, you know, I know that sobriety as a whole, there's, there's a privacy piece. So again, I'm, I'm asking you to be the judge of what yeah. you want to share. Um, but were you able to find friends to support you? Were there groups that you tried to go, you did, or were you just like, no, I, this one, you know, you're one of those people who could cold turkey it and, um, and, and never look back. I don't know anyone who could cold turkey it, frankly. I, I've been in the recovery community for a year now. And that was my problem before, right? Again, it's, it's kind of like what I was doing, I thought was okay as a guy because it's so damn accepted in our society. I really did. Right. I didn't think I was cheating, but in my wife's mind, I was cheating on her. And now I understand I was, but I didn't at the time. I was in blatant denial, blatant denial of, of what I told myself. And that's the, what addicts do. They justify and they deny and they make up stories and they rationalize what they're doing. And so for me, it wasn't a matter of like, like let go and let God is what we say in recovery. It's literally going in and, 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 you know, following in the footsteps of people who've done it before. So there's four or five things that I did and that I still do, frankly, just to make sure that I'm vigilant and making sure that I'm not, you know, taking for granted how far I've come. But, you know, for me, it was about getting a sponsor. It was about getting into therapy and specifically addiction therapy for where I struggled with, right? People that had that criteria, not just any therapist, but, um, you know, a certified sex addiction therapist was, was who I chose to see. It was going in and making sure that I had a network of guys that were like me that could understand what I was going through that had gone through this before. So what we call accountability partners, when you're ever feeling urged or tempted or in a bad place, you just pick up the phone, the whole group of guys that can support you. So I had a shit ton of support from my sponsor, from my therapist, from other guys. And then I did what was called the 90 and 90 program. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. So the idea is not to, you know, just to stop doing what you're doing. The idea is to replace what you're doing with healthy, positive behaviors. So on top of, you know, stopping what I was doing, I also started working out very regularly. I started journaling, journaling. I'm praying every day. I, I took coaching at a whole different can I, level. How can I ask you a question? I want to know how your advice for somebody in terms of how they would broach this subject with their boss to, to be best supported because we all know there's probably names we could shoot out right now at the top of our head, people who are struggling and suffering with addiction of some type. Um, and I, you know, one of the difficult pieces has got to be like, how do I tell my boss that I'm going through this? How do you, how do you navigate that relationship and that situation? Um, I think that would be helpful for people to hear. Yeah. Um, there, you know, I can tell you what I did, right? I, I yeah. said, look, I love Salesforce. I called my boss. I called my boss's boss and I called our SVP of sales, all of them individually. And the support I got was overwhelming. There was no shame. There was no taboo. There was no judgment. They all said to me, you've done your part. 
take care of your family, do what you got to do. I could not sit and sell when I was dealing with this, when I thought my wife left me briefly and I, I was in such a tough place, but at the same time, I was feeling so strong because I had God, I had this belief that I could change, that I finally was doing the right things that could help rid me of this thing that plagued me my whole life. And so I, I, you know, I told my boss what I was doing. I told him the commitments that I had. I told him about my family. And I said, this is my top priorities. And I said, frankly, I'm not going to be able to put in the time that I used to put in before. Cause I, this is my priority going to these meetings, going to therapy. And my boss was overwhelmingly supportive. said, you got to do what you got to do. I think, yeah, I, think that, I think that conversation is, is very scary for, for people to have. Try having a conversation with your wife, telling her everything you've done. That's out oh, of integrity. Sure. But um, you know, but, but, but not, not everybody, but there's people out there who are not married or not even in a relationship at all of any kind Yeah, who still need to think about that conversation with their boss and with their colleagues and things like yeah. that. Yeah. I think, I think it comes down to priorities, right? For me, I had proven what I needed to prove at Salesforce. I'd done my part. If they weren't going to support me and getting healthy, then they probably weren't the right company for me to be at. So it, 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 if the priority is health and wellness and mental health and recovery for whatever it is, again, I, I use my story as an example, but for me, it wasn't just sex and nature. It was a lot of stuff. I got drunk too often. I did a bunch of other things. I needed to rid all of it. I needed to get to a place where I was healthy and I could cope. Right. And that's so how what did you, so, you know, you know, Again, if you're if you can share, I don't I don't know what the policy is, but you know, were you able to still work and just work less and take care of yourself, or did you need to take a leave of absence? Like for you, how did you do it? Not what is, I mean. Yeah, I, I know yeah. that Salesforce will support these kinds of things, but you know, what was your path to? Because I, I want to again I, to Scott's point. Like, let's talk about like, okay, so yeah, it's one thing to say it; it's another thing to do it. <laughs> So my, my path was, was really simple is I didn't know what my path was going to be, but I knew it wouldn't be the same path I was on. So I told my boss, I just need space. I need space to prioritize my family and my, my health right now. I need to get better. I'm in a dark place. I might lose my family. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that work isn't the most important thing right now. I'll do my best, but I, if you don't see new opportunities, if you don't see the meetings, I just want you to know why. So I didn't actually go on leave once this happened. I just you know, took care of what I needed to take care of um, in terms of Salesforce, but I, I'd say I put in the bare minimum um, in terms of what I needed to do. I'd be responding, you know, to deals or to, to I wouldn't just fall off and, you know, not hurt my, hurt my customers, but I made sure I told my team, hey, I'm going to be dealing with some personal things. I need you to step up and take a bigger role. So I made sure that my accounts and the, you know, the, the basics were covered, that, that my customers wouldn't suffer from my own personal um, issues. I told my boss that, you know, the tracking of the activity that you normally would do, you're going to see some dips in numbers. So I, I set the expectations up front. And I basically work probably 10 to 20 hours a week, I would say, versus like 40 to 50 from where I was originally working. And and um, he was okay with it. And, and so this all happened in February. And then we had Luke, but again, he's a healthy boy. He's the happiest boy. My family's doing great. And that's what's important. And if I hadn't put the focus and emphasis on that, I wouldn't be where I am today. I, I don't know where I'd be, but I, I told my boss, this is my number one priority. I think for me, I, I've been there long enough and I, I trust and I um, really respect a lot of my leadership that I was working for directly in my enterprise group. And so I called all of them and told them what was going on. And, and the response was universal. It was 
take care of your family. That's what's most important. And so for the first we've few- had, we've, had, we've had a lot of interactions with people at Salesforce recently and, and Salesforce has proven to be outstanding um, in their support of employees, you know, going through personal challenges and struggle. Um, so, you know, kudos to them and kudos to you for, for doing the work. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they've been great. So I ended up going on, on paternity leave once we had our son. And then I, I spent three months with my family and, and just supporting my wife and my baby. And it was, you know, three of the best months I've ever had in my life. Yeah, great. Coming back. And then I hit my number and it was, it was interesting because I was afraid to come back. I was like, well, my, you know, that old kind of old self came in and said, well, maybe, you know, you're not, you, here you are some sales thought leader and, you know, you, you might not even hit your number. And, and there was that big fear of like coming back and not performing. Cause now I was doing all these other things that were important with my family and my mental health, but it ended up not being a problem. Cause I, I just was working a lot smarter and I didn't end up going back to working those 40 or 50 hours a week. I ended up actually working a lot less, but what I was working on was much more impactful and I used my team better and I was more focused. So I realized, you know, you don't have to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week to perform. I ended up finishing 110%, even while getting sober, even while having a baby, even during COVID, I performed. So it just goes to show, you know, you don't need to put all your eggs in one basket to, to perform. In fact, less time you have, sometimes the more efficient and effective you are with your time. So I, I, I'm, I'm glad it all worked out the way it did, but I wouldn't change a damn thing, except obviously I wouldn't put my wife through any pain. But I mean, this is what needed to happen for me to to give back and to help other people in the way that God wants me to help them. And it, it's amazing too. Like I was halfway through your story when you were telling it and I was like, wait a minute, this was last week. Like, and then COVID hit, like it, it took me a minute right. in my head to kind of go, wait a minute, right. <laughs> like, you know? Um, so, you know, but thank you so it was, much. It was like, it was like right during COVID. So it was February, oh, yeah. all this shit happened. So I, I imagine this, the groups that I was going to now are gone. Everything's online. Right. So I'm dealing with online selling plus online recovery. Plus, I mean, it was, it was a freaking rough year, but it's all about resilience. If there's yeah. any quality that salespeople make them the best, it's, it's resilience. And this was a personal resilience that I improved myself in sales, but I did not prove myself as a father and a husband and as, as a human being and as a man of faith. And so I had a lot of work to do in other areas. So you know, it was just like, honestly, God threw so much at me last year. And it just, it was, it was all by design. You know, it, it's not, unfortunately, COVID, I, I would, it, there's so much tragedy and destruction and, and lo lives lost. But for our family, in some ways, it was a blessing because it forced us to be together. And I wasn't traveling and it made this focus be easier where I could spend time, you know, where it mattered most and, and get my house in order because there was nowhere else to go. So it, it just... I mean, for us, it brought so much unity to our household to go through this amidst the pandemic and just to make sure, you know, again, nothing matters more than my wife than my kids and from being every day the, 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 the man that I'm meant to be versus, you know, the, the things that the behaviors that I that I chose to engage in in the past. So it's, it's obviously, you know, always a work in progress. We're always trying to get better. But this is just something that I think anyone who's struggling with with areas or behaviors that aren't aligned to their character or is not congruent with who they see themselves at, you got to deal with it at some point or else it's going to deal with you or else like you're not going to have a choice. It's, you're going to be forced at one point. So I, I just wish, you know, that other people can, can hear this and, you know, could, could address what is important to them in terms of their mental health, in terms of their, um, 
family and, and, and focus where, where it matters, man, because, you know, selling and performing and making a million dollars, you know, that's all great, but that's not going to bring you joy and fulfillment in, in the end. What comes from true joy and happiness is being the person that you know you're capable of being and fully embracing who you are, your, bet, your best, your worst, your good, bad, and ugly, and knowing that you're being honest and, and true to yourself. And, and I can say that during the past year, I, I, I've done that every day and it's just been, you know, the best, the best thing. Yeah, no, it, it's great. And, uh, you know, you know, to your point of taking care of family, Scott had to jump off as we wrapped this up because of, uh, he's got to take his kids to baseball practice. So, um, but we always end our show, we, you know, and I give it a quick shout out to Vidyard, Salesforce Revenue Cloud, Lead411 and Gong.io. Uh, so please check those folks out. If you are trying to grow your revenue in your business in 2021, every one of these tools will absolutely help you. But our last question always for you is, you know, what can we do for you? Is there is there any question you want to ask us? Is there, you know, clearly there's some causes you like to support, um, but, you know, we sort of give the mic to you and, and we'll take it where you want to go. Yeah, I think, um, you know, part of the reason that I go on these podcasts is really to to get the word out, to get the story out, right? And this is not a story that I, I love to share. It's painful and there's a lot of heartache, but it's a real story. It's a true story. And so I would just say, you know, for anybody who is inspired or humbled or, you know, this, this resonated with, you know, I put out content every single week and the content is a combination of helping reps learn the skills to go from good to great to master enterprise selling. And it's also personal development, becoming the best version of yourself, whether that's through your health or your relationships or your contribution and service. I'm trying to help people you know, really live their best lives. And, yep. and that's the kind of content I put out. So I'd love if, if it's resonated to, to go check out me on LinkedIn or go to my YouTube channel. It's just Ian Koniak. Watch some of the videos, send me a DM, let me know how it's impact, impacted you. If anything's, you know, unfortunately we talked a lot about, um, you know, mental health. If there's anything that you're struggling with, let me know. Um, and I'm happy to point you in the right direction or help yep. get you help. So you don't have to go through some of the pain and, you know, difficulties that I, I have. You've got to raise your hand. So I'm here yeah. to help in confident confidentiality, but get help. That That's all I'd ask everyone. Yeah, and, and the one thing I want to point out uh, is that, you know, it's often that men are, you know, we're taught not to talk about this stuff, right? We're taught, you know, in addition to whatever we might feel sort of our societal issue is that, you know, don't talk about your feelings. Don't cry in baseball. You know, you don't cry ever. And, um, and I'm really appreciative and, and grateful to you for sharing your story. One, because it's a story that needs to be shared as a whole, but two, you know, guys, it's okay to talk about this stuff. It's okay. It's not easy. You know, it's scary, um, but you're not alone if you ever feel like you need it. And I know Ian's, you know, gave out his, his email and everything. I do the same. People talk to me on LinkedIn about it and my struggles with mental health. So, you know, thank you very much, Ian, for coming on and, um, you know, I'd love to do it again in, in another six months and see where you are, right? Like yeah. see what see what 18 months looks like versus 12, because I think it's an interesting journey to 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 support and you know give you that avenue. Well, I, I appreciate it. And, and and you're right, Richard. You're you're not alone. In fact, I shared the story with the group of about 50 guys, and you know, uh, uh, 10 or 15 came up afterwards and said, I have a similar challenge yep. and so just in that I mean, tiny room of those people who raised their hand there was a third of the people so I, yeah. I i can't tell you how accepted some of these things are in our society but if, if it's not okay with you then that's all that matters so yep. you know just, just uh, yeah go raise your hand and, and, and you're not alone that's all i can tell you 
All right. Thanks, Ian, man. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Great to be here, Richard. Thanks so much for having me.